0: Section 35 of Russia, Austria Hungary, the Balkan States, and Turkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 6 Russia, Austria Hungary, the Balkan States, and Turkey. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 35 in a tartar tent about 1909 by lyndon bates jr a piercing wind searching and paralyzing meets the tarantas beyond the crest at the southern border of the forest it is Gobi's compliments to baikal the salute of the great desert to the great lake the horses stumble through the drifted snow scarcely able to walk the driver blinded half frozen keeps to the general direction of the obliterated trail Barely one verst an hour is made until, under the shelter of the bald white range of hills, the road reappears and the wind is warded off. A rolling plain between the heights is the next stretch of the way. The afternoon sun, dimly bright, creeps haloed through the lightly falling snow. Deep in the mist appears a dark, moving mass. It grows, focuses, and takes shape into a shaggy beast of burden, and camel after camel emerges from the haze loaded with square bales of tea ask if there is shelter near you shout to the muffled head of the interpreter i will ask he replies then to the caravan leader say no he cries in greeting the foremost camel stares stonily as its mongol driver twitches the piece of wood which pierces its upper lip and the whole train stops giro humbene tea tea or humbene comes the answer it is close at hand forward the caravan slowly paces each camel turning his head to stare as he passes out into the mist again one of them has left a fleck of blood in each print of his broad spongy foot which the driver will cobble with leather at the next halt along their trail you drive southward the mist is clearing as you rise and the sun shines down on the snow which is crystallized in little shafts an inch high these spear-shaped slivers have a brightness and a sheen of extraordinary brilliance and like prisms show all the colors of the rainbow they cast a gleam as might a mirror a hundred yards away it is as if upon the great white mantle had been thrown a haphazard treasure in rubies and emeralds and diamonds and opals myriad ever-growing rivals of dresden regalias the sun goes down with its necromancy beyond the soft blanket enfolds the rolling hills it drapes the rocks and weaves drooping festoons about the barren mountainsides. "'Mongol Yurda!' calls Andre, turning to point out with his whip the low, dome-shaped hut, black against the darkening sky. On its unknown occupant we are to billet ourselves, sheltered by the rule of nomad hospitality. As the tarantass nears the waddled corral, the watchful ravens stir from their perches. The picketed camels turn out to stare. A gaunt black hound stalks out with mane erect and ominous growls. Nahoy, cries out Alexemovich, to the inhabitants of the hut, then adds to you, very bad dogs. It is a Mongol proverb, if you are near a dog, you are near a bite. Beneath an osier built lean-to, a woman is milking a sheep, with a lamb to encourage the flow. She calls a guttural order to the dog, which slinks back. Then she comes to the waddled fence, while the sheep which had been getting milked escapes to the far corner of the yard. The woman's head is curiously framed by a triangular red hat and silver hairplates, which hold out like wings her black tresses. The shoulders of her magenta dress are padded up into epaulets two inches high. She is girded with a sash. Say no, says Aleximovich. Sane, she answers, and opens the gateway to the enclosure around the hut andre drives in among the sheep and cows and you climb lumberingly down with cold stiffened limbs andre puts his whip upon the felt roof for it is a deadly breach of etiquette to bring it into the house you go in said alexemovich it is like entering a kennel this struggle through the narrow aperture muffled to the eyes in double furs and awkward felt boots as you straighten up after the crawl through the entrance a red glare from the fire just in front meets the gaze stinging smoke grips the throat you choke in pain it blinds the smarting eyes you gasp and stagger then someone takes your hand and pulls you violently down on a low couch to the left where in the course of time breath and sight return there's no chimney nor stack for the fire of the brazier which stands in the center of the hut one can see the open sky through the three-foot hole above the smoke finding its way toward this aperture works along the sloping wooden poles which form the framework of the felt-covered tent filling the whole upper section with its blinding fumes to stand is to smother sitting the head comes below the smoke line with recovered vision one can look around within the hut the couch of refuge raised some six inches above the floor is the bed by night the sitting-place by day against the wall at the left hand and directly opposite the door is a box-like cupboard along whose top are ranged pictures of grotesque buddhist gods before whom are little brass cups full of offerings millet or oil in which is standing a burning wick beside the door is a shelf loaded with fire-blackened pots and kettles branches of birch for fuel are thrown beneath on the far side of the room three black lambs fenced off by a wicker barricade are huddled together quietly sleeping seated beside the fire close by is the girl of nineteen who has just saved you from asphyxiation the long fur-lined working dress common to all ages and sexes of mongols is buttoned on her left side with bright brass buttons and is belted in with a sash she has not the padded shoulder humps nor the spreading hair arrangement which gave to her mother who welcomed us so weird an appearance her complexion is swarthy like an indian's not the chalky chinese yellow and she has red cheeks and full red lips her eyes are large and black the rest of the party have stayed a moment outside to ask about hay and water you have made this solitary and awkward entrance the girl has no more notion than a bird who the strange man of another nation may be who has stumbled into her home but it does not trouble her in the least for a moment she looks you over calmly with a smile of amused curiosity rolling and wringing with her fingers a lambskin which she is softening then, composedly, she bids you the Mongol welcome, say no, and holds out her hand. Her grip is as firm and frank as a Siberian's. Now Aleximovich comes tumbling through the door, and next Andrei. Both are used to these huts and artistically stoop below the smoke line. All our impedimenta, blankets, furs, pots, kettles, bread bag, rifles, are heaped in a mound within the space between the couch and the tethered lambs. The girl has not stirred from her work. They are friends of yours, then, Aleximovich, you ask? No, no, I never saw them, he answers. Anyone may take shelter in any yurta in Mongolia. A small head suddenly makes its appearance from the pile of rugs on the sofa opposite, on the woman's side of the tent. There emerges, naked save for a bronze square-holed Chinese cash fastened around her neck, a little slant-eyed three-year-old. The water in the small cups offered to the duck cheats has long been ice, and one has full need of one's inner fur coat and cap in the hut, where the entrance, opening with every visitor, sends a draft of air, forty degrees below zero, through from the door to the open hole which serves as chimney. And still this tot can step out naked and not even seem to feel it. The child's name, asks Aleximovich. Torunga, replies the girl. And your own? Sibylina, she says, and smiles. Turunga carefully inspects you, and solemnly accepts a lump of sugar, which she knows what to do with, even if it is a rare luxury offered to gods. She sits down in an evidently accustomed spot on the warm felt before the brazier, to play with the scissor-like fire tongs, carefully putting back the red coals that have fallen out on the earthen platform. The tyrantas driver, having piled up your impedimenta, excavates from its midst the bag of rye bread which he sets to thaw he gets next the little bag of palmenis the meatballs covered with dough-paste which you carry frozen hard the mother comes in from under the Yurtis flap and placing a blackened basin over the brazier puts into it a little water and scours diligently with a bundle of birch twigs she brushes out this water on the earthen floor near the entrance this is the picketed lamb's especial territory to which the felt rugs before the couches and the altar do not extend a big bag of snow, which she has brought from outside, is opened, and the chunks are piled into the basin, where, while one watches, it melts down into water. Butzella, butzella! she cries soon, holding a lighted sliver over the basin to see it by. It boils. Into the Mongol's pot go our palmenis, to brew for a few moments. An accidentally trenchant description of Siberian palmenis was given on the quaintly worded French bill of fare in the hotel at Irkutsk, meat hashed in bullets of dough. They come out, however, a combination of hot soup and dumplings, very welcome after the long, cold day's drive across the plains, the frozen marsh, and the rolling hills. The wooden Chinese bowls from the bazaar at Troitskosovsk are filled now with our hostess's big ladle, and the application of warmth inwardly gradually thaws the outlying regions of the body. But there is trouble in camp. Turunga is moved by the peculiar passions of her sex and her age, curiosity and hunger. It does not matter in the least that she has homemade palmenis every two or three days. She wants these particular meatballs. The little mouth begins to pucker, and the eyes to screw up. No amount of knee riding by the mother takes the place of the palmenis. We fill a heaping ladle full, and Andre furnishes his own bowl the mother receives it holding out both her hands cup fashion as is the etiquette and Turunga is satisfied the mother looks kindly to the stranger and smiles at andrei then throws more sticks of the precious firewood on the embers andrei has caught likewise the not unadmiring glance of the young maid the girl who waits in Troitskasovsk is not the only one who appreciates our six-foot siberian hunter the dog barks in the yard, but without the menace which hailed us, and the crunch of a horse's hoofs sounds on the frozen ground outside. The flap opens, with its rush of freezing air. Stooping, there enters a typical Mongolian, squat of figure, round of head, with broad, sun-browned face, and a short queue of black hair. He wears a funnel-shaped hat, magenta-colored, and is enveloped in a long shuba, with brass buttons down one side like a fencer's jacket about his waist is a sash with jingling knives and pouches he is the head of the family come in from herding his horses he turns back the long fur-lined cuffs which have protected his gloveless hands and stretches out both his arms for you to place your hands over his it is the man's ceremony of welcome then he produces a little porcelain snuff-bottle this must be received in the palm of the right hand with a bow it is to be utilized and passed back if the herder is out of snuff the bottle is offered just the same and you must appreciatively pretend to take a pinch such is etiquette the soup is gone now the pot cleaned out for the tea is again on the boil and leaves are thrown in andre has borrowed a hatchet from his host and has chopped off a piece of milk which goes in as well it is in order to ask the new arrival subadar j to pass his wooden cup for some of the beverage he takes it and the lump of sugar without a word of thanks the mongol language has no expression to signify gratitude silence does not however mean that he does not appreciate the dozen pieces of mongol sandal sole bread which he gives you later are worth two bricks of tea in the open market and this current medium of exchange caravan brought tea is worth sixty kopecks the brick no small gift this bread to an interloping stranger who is brewing tea by his fire and camping unasked on his bed a tibet schooled lama knows the buddhist maxim only accomplish good deed ask no reward but the unlettered mongol layman knows its practice little turunga has played naked before the fire long enough now she is caught up her reluctant feet are put into the boots with pointed upturned toes and her body into a miniature sheepskin daily such as her mother and father wear the little girl is as smiling and shy and coquettish as any child of white skin and complex clothes would you sell turunga for a brick of tea no no says the mother gathering the little one quickly up into her arms while the rest of the family smiles at the offer and her solicitude no no not even for ten bricks everybody laughs turunga with the rest in a child's instinctive knowledge that she is the centre of admiring attraction far more petting than the russian babies get is lavished on the little mongols perhaps the much smaller families only two or three children to a hut Allow more attention per capita. The mother hands Turunga over to her father, unheard of in Siberia, and he plays with the child, giving her pieces of sheep's tail to eat from his mouth, answering her prattle or baby talk and endless questions. At night, about eight o'clock, the mother takes the child to the couch and they both go to sleep, Turunga cuddled warmly under her mother's shuba. Meanwhile, we men sit cross legged by the fire and talk of many things of the pasturage for the sheep of the snow on the road of the beauty of the housewife's silver head-plates of water and roads of whether or not the mongol dokchits on the altar are like the gobi wolves that hate chinese it is interesting to note how some of the words used few however have a familiar sound although there is said to be no common ancestry with the indo-germanic tongues Perhaps it is only the instinctive sound imitation which makes the Mongol baby cry mama to its mother, as does the child in Cheetah and in Chicago. Mine, for instance, is mina. Thine is Tene. A horse or mare is mari. The word for it is, they are, is bene, a fairly respectable term of the word to be in Chaucer's English. The grammar is delightfully simple. In the vernacular there is no bothering about singular or plural. One hut is Niger-gir. Two huts, Hayur-gir. Milk is Su, and apparently the word for water was formed from it, Usu. If one wants to know whether it is time to throw in the meatballs, he says, usu Butsela With a rising inflection. Water boils? And the answer is, butzela. The moon and a month are Sara, and the years go in cycles of twelve. If one wants to compliment the host on the excellence of the sandal-shaped bread which he hands out, loaded with gray chalky cheese hurut one says bread good be boba sen bene this gives him great pleasure some of the written numbers are somewhat like ours two and three are nearly the same but they have fallen forward on their faces six has an extra tail when the teapot overturns they say harlab to relieve their feelings there is no word for so good farewell or much obliged these are just squeezed into the heartiness of the final good sane so when one leaves he holds out both arms palms up for the host to put his own upon and says loudly say a not unbarren amusement is to study out one's own derivation for some much explained words tamerlane is often given as meaning the lame why does it not rather come from temur iron and mean man of iron as the ruler of the Kalka tribe was called altan khan the golden king the amur river has Murin black water, usually given as its derivative root. Why not the Mongol word amur, which means simply quiet? In the hut tonight, while we are comparing mother tongues, the brazier fire has burned to red brands. The girl reaches into a basket beside the door for pieces of dried camel dung and puts them on that the embers may be fed and live through the night. These Argols do not smoke. She may close the chimney hole with the flap of felt and the hut will be kept somewhat warm through the night the mongols prepare for sleep they take off their boots and slip their arms from the sleeves of their fur shubas in which they roll themselves up as we in our blankets but how hardened they are to the cold a naked arm will project and the robes become loose but they do not wake we keep on all our inner clothing and roll ourselves about with skins until we are great cocoons andre gives a good-night look to his horses then he too lies down with our heads beside the altar of the gods we sleep in the Mongols gear. End of section thirty five. This recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Colleen McMahon.